0: Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, In
1: 1949, uh, Joseph Campbell wrote a very seminal book entitled The Hero with a thousand faces. And as a student of stories, uh, one of the things that Joseph Campbell discovered is that uh, in every story, a hero goes through 17 different stages in their narrative arc. And uh, we're not gonna go through all 17 stages today, but let me summarize all 17 stages in just three stages. Every hero experiences a calling, they experience conflict, and they display courage. So um, let me use Moana as an example, since she was playing in uh, the Chung household this morning. Moana experiences a calling. Um, Her father wants her to be the next chief of the island of Montanui. Her grandmother thinks she's going to be the one that is destined to save the people on the island of Montanui. But... Even though she experiences a calling, she also experiences conflict. And the conflict is this, the island of Montanui can no longer support the weight of all the people that live on the island. And so Moana thinks that she needs to go beyond the ocean reef to discover other lands, but her father forbids her from going beyond the reef because it's too dangerous. So there's conflict. But even in the midst of conflict, Moana displays courage and she goes beyond the reef. And as a result of that, the people are saved and the island of Montanui is restored. And so, what Campbell is saying is that um, heroes go through this narrative arc. Now, who would Moana be if she ignored the call, if she avoided conflict instead of faced it, and if she was driven by fears instead of driven by courage? Who would she be? She would probably be a shell of who she actually became. Who would Frodo be if he never left the Shire? Who would Dorothy be if she never left Kansas? Who would Simba be if he was never exiled from the land? Uh, It's only because they obeyed the call. They were willing to confront conflict instead of avoid it. They were driven by courage instead of driven by fear of failure, fear of isolation, fear of the unknown, fear of discomfort, fear of insecurity, fear of social marginalization. It's because they were driven by courage that they became who they are. And I am convinced that one of the reasons why we don't feel like our lives are purposeful, we don't feel like our lives are actually meaningful, we don't feel like we're on an adventure or a journey, is because we don't realize that we have been called, not by Gandalf, but we have been called by God. Instead of confronting conflict and facing it, we tend to run away from it because we're afraid of it. And instead of being driven by courage, we are driven by fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of rejection, fear of isolation, and so forth. What this passage is all about is how we are all called by God, and if you are called by God, you will face conflict, but in the midst of conflict, we must display courage. But every calling, first and foremost, always begins with belief in God himself, and so take a look with me at verses four through five. And it says that when he, that is Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Um, Peter, Simon Peter, by trade, is a fisherman. Okay, and so he and all the, uh, the other fishermen with him, that's James and John, and probably there were some others... Uh, they had been fishing all night, and the reason why fishermen fish at night is because fish tend to swim more on the surface of the water at night for some reason, but during the daytime they swim deeper in the water. And so that's the reason why they had been fishing all night, and back then in the first century world, there were no fishing rods, and so what they would do instead is they would cast a net over the boat, like throwing a frisbee, and keep in mind that this net is not like very light, but it's actually quite heavy, especially if it's soaked with water and full of fish. And so they would cast the net out like a frisbee, and they would slowly drag the net back into the boat. And they would do it over and over. They would cast the net out, slowly drag. And so it was a very taxing and laborious uh, work. And so Simon and the other disciples uh, were fishing all night, and they didn't catch a thing. And so Jesus comes and he says, why don't you cast your net out once more? Now keep in mind that Jesus by trade is not a fisherman. He is a carpenter and a rabbi. What does a carpenter know about fishing? Nothing. How would you like it if someone came to you at your job and what you do, and despite the fact that they work in a different department, they were telling you how to do your job? And chances are that's actually probably happened to some of you. It's offensive. You don't know how to do what I do. Look, you have to stay in your lane. you know. Uh, but here... Peter, knowing that Jesus is not a carpenter, uh, a fisherman, despite being a carpenter and rabbi, does what Jesus says. And if you take a look at the text, there are five very beautiful words that Peter says in response to what Jesus says. And he says, but because you say so. But because you say so. And within these five words are embedded at least three different things. And the first thing is this. Oftentimes we think that doubt And faith cannot peaceably and happily coexist. But here in this passage, it clearly does. Peter's skeptical. He says to Jesus, hey, um, just so you know, we've been fishing all night long. If we throw this net out again, we're probably not going to catch anything. So there's doubt. And yet he says, but because you say so. So there is a modicum of faith. Oftentimes we think that the opposite of belief is doubt. But what we see in this passage is that the opposite of belief is not doubt. The opposite of belief is unbelief. Doubts are somewhere in the middle. And you find, if you find the answers to your doubts, it can actually propel you to greater and greater faith. And so here we see that uh, belief and doubt can uh, peaceably coexist together. Here's the second thing that we see. Oftentimes we think that Uh, the prerequisite for us to believe in God is that God has to perfectly align with everything that we believe in. And if God doesn't value what we value, if God doesn't believe what we believe in, we reject him. But notice here that Peter is willing to be corrected. He's willing to be wronged. Uh, He's willing and humble enough to say, maybe you're right. Maybe if I do cast this net out once more, something will happen. And oftentimes we think that unless God believes what I believe, you know, we won't accept him. And what we're really saying at that point, if we have that mentality, is not so much that we want to believe in a God, but what we really want more than anything else is just an idealized version of ourselves. If God is real, if he's omnipotent, if he's infinite and our minds are finite and our opinions constantly change, which they do, couldn't it be possible that we might be wrong about certain things, and that God might be right about certain things? And so all this to say before you may prematurely reject who he is and what he has to offer, consider that approach, that it's possible that we might be wrong. And just because God doesn't perfectly align with what we believe in, uh, we all always need to have the humility to know that we could be corrected. There's a third thing that we see, though, within this statement, but because you say so, and that is this, uh, that when it comes to doubts, there's an open-minded kind of doubter, and there's a closed-minded kind of doubter. There's a doubter that wants, really, really wants answers, and there's a kind of doubter that really doesn't want answers. Now, how do we tell the difference between the two, an open-minded doubter and a closed-minded doubter? Well, in the 19th century, uh, there was a very well-known American writer named Robert Ingersoll, And Ingersoll was also an atheist. And Ingersoll would travel the entire country speaking in front of very large crowds. And as a very outspoken atheist, he would do things like, if there is a God, I dare this God to strike me down in the next 60 seconds. And in dramatic fashion, he would count down 60, 59, 58, 57, 56, all the way down to zero. And then he would say, see, there is no God. Now... To Ingersoll's credit, he would say that if there was enough evidence for God, he would actually believe in him. But based upon his approach, would you say that he's an open-minded doubter or a closed-minded doubter? Probably a little bit more of a closed-minded doubter. So what is an open-minded doubter that really wants answers, that really, really wants the truth look like? Believe it or not, I want to point you to the famous British comedian and actor, Russell Brand who uh, often plays an airheaded character in a lot of his movies. But in reality, Russell Brand is actually quite, quite sharp. And in his uh, podcast, which I want to point you to on the first page of your bulletin, he has a conversation with an Oxford Don theologian and scientist named Alistair McGrath. And they talk about whether there's any point to God. And I want to read you a quick excerpt of what Brand says. And Brand says that, My fear of atheism is that if there is nothing else, the material, the mechanical, then why not materialism? Why not individualism? Without a deeper truth, for me, there is only hedonism, only indulgence. And the reason why I want to point you to uh, this little excerpt is because Russell is, you know, despite being an agnostic or an atheist, you can tell from this statement alone that he is willing to question his own position. He's willing to challenge his own position. For me, the, the key to progressing in terms of the way that we think is not only by challenging the other side or the repugnant other. For me, one of the ways that we progress in terms of the way that we think is not by just challenging the other side, but by challenging our own positions as well. And here, Russell is clearly willing to do that. He's willing to challenge his own position. Peter, as well, he is someone that is willing to challenge his own position, and he says, but because you say so, Lord we will cast the net out again. And so this time they throw the net out again like a frisbee. And as they reel the net back in, soaking wet, it is full of fish. In fact, it is full of so many fish, the text says that the net is actually ripping. And so they ask the other boat to come on shore and they pull all the fish over to one boat, but it's sinking. They put the fish on the other boat, but that boat is sinking. And one of the reasons why the boat is sinking is because of the way that boats were constructed in the first country world. When you hear the word boat, the image in your head is probably something like a speedboat or the Titanic. But in the first century world, and we know this because archaeologists have discovered a boat in the Sea of Galilee dating all the way back to into the first century that was buried in the sea, we know that in the first century world, uh, boats looked like wooden, 25-foot long wooden canoes that were about four feet high. And so you can understand if a, if a long canoe is full of people and full of fish, it could easily sink. And that is what is taking place here. And so what we see is that the first step for Simon Peter to believing in Jesus was his willingness to question his own position. But not only a willingness to question his own position, but it was also a profound experience of God. Reason is not enough to ever believe. If I answered all of your skeptical questions, and you were maybe agnostic or atheist, would you believe? Chances are you wouldn't. What you also need is a profound experience of God. And here we see that not only Simon Peter's questions are answered, but he has this dramatic, dramatic experience. And so if you take a look with me at verses 6 through 9, it says, When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners into the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken." If you take a look at Peter's response and you had this, this uh, plethora of fish all of a sudden flooding your boat, wouldn't you think that Peter's first response would be, this is amazing. Uh, this is unbelievable. We're going to be rich. We don't, have to, we don't have to catch anything for months. We have food enough for, for months. We could feed everyone. But notice what his response is. His response isn't, this isn't amazing. This is amazing. But what is his response? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, why is that his response instead of saying, this is amazing, this is phenomenal? And what Peter understood is that the purpose, the point of this miracle was not to catch a fish. Peter understood that the point of this miracle was for him to see who Jesus really is. It wasn't the fish. It was for Peter to see who he really, Jesus really is. And once he saw what he was really like, he falls to Jesus' knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In verse 5, he calls him master. But by the time we get to verse 8, he calls him Lord. And so how do you know when you have experienced God in your life? It's not necessarily when something supernatural happens like this boatload of fish in your life. How do you know when you've really experienced God in your life? If you want to know how real God is, you know you have experienced God in your life when you have a profound awareness of your sin. You know why I say that? Because most Americans think at the end of the day, even though I'm not perfect, I'm a good person. And yet the Bible is replete with passages that say over and over and over again, there is no one righteous, no, not one. How do you know when someone has experienced a profound experience of God? That verse no longer offends us because we know it's true. That's how you know when you have experienced God because there's an unraveling. Peter didn't experience an earthquake. He, could, he experienced a self-quake, and he was shaken to the core. And similarly, if you want a profound experience of God, one of the signs that you know you've done that is when you, you have a profound reality of who you really, really are. So let me give you an example of what this looks like. Imagine for a moment that you are the best singer amongst your group of friends. You're the person that gets always invited to all the weddings to sing. And so let's say you're singing at this one particular wedding but the DJ pulls you aside and, and, and the DJ says to you, hey, just FYI, you got to bring your A-game because I heard that Kelly Clarkson and Christina Aguilera is performing with The Roots live right after you so you have to bring your A-game. How would you feel if someone said that to you? You would feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hide in a hole. I, I would, you would unravel, you would feel undone. Why? Because they're about to see greatness you know, glory, and you're being compared to them, and that is precisely what happens here with Peter. He shrivels up, he shrinks because he understands that he is now in uh, the presence of greatness. And that is what happens when you are juxtaposed next to glory. Let me give you another example of this. Martin Luther, the German reformer, uh, before he converted it into Protestant Christianity. He was an Augustinian Roman Catholic monk. And in Roman Catholic tradition, it's, um, it's a normal to confess your sins to your confessor or your priest. Luther's confessor was a man named Father Johann von Staupitz, And Luther would not go to see him one minute a day, six minutes a day, or even 30 minutes a day. Luther would go to see him six hours a day. This is a true story. That's almost like a full work day. And it got to a point where Father von, Johann von Staupitz was like, and I quote, Luther, it's as though you think every fart is a sin. You think everything is a sin, and Luther, but Luther's whole dilemma was this, but how does a sinner stand before a holy God? I can't. Now keep in mind that Luther is a monastic, Augustinian, Roman, Catholic monk whose job it was to pray and help the poor. This is not Pol Pot, this is not Hitler, this is not Stalin. This is a monk who is praying six hours a day because he has such a profound awareness of his inadequacies and his weaknesses. This is the reason why Peter says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Imagine again for a moment that we are all astronauts and a glass manufacturer makes our windshields for the space shuttle that we're going to take to Mars. But the manufacturer says, uh, 99% of this windshield is actually fine, but there's a small, tiny crack right in the middle of the windshield. But here's the good news, most of the windshield is fine, and the crack hasn't grown in the past few months. It's stayed the same size. If you were an astronaut, you know, about to fly to Mars, would you accept that windshield? Of course not. Why? Because good windshields don't go into outer space. Only perfect ones do. And it is no different when it comes to God in heaven. Good people do not go to heaven. Only perfect ones do. This is the reason why Peter says, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. And yet, what is Jesus' response in 10, uh, the latter half of verse 10? Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. There are a lot of different things that Jesus could have said, but he calms Peter's fears and he says to him do not be afraid when Peter wants to push God away from him Jesus away from him what does Jesus do he pulls him in closer and in this very tiny verse you see a glimpse of what God is like even when we want to push him away he refuses and he wants to always pull us in closer to be more and more like him And so he says don't be afraid I was thinking about this uh, phrase uh, actually all week, and I was uh, reminded of an essay I read a few years ago by a man named um, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a mathematician and a philosopher who taught at Cambridge uh, over 50 years ago, and Russell was also a a very outspoken atheist, and um, his quest was always to find what makes life enduring, and so he investigated a lot of different religions in the world and philosophies, and he wrote an essay entitled why I am not a Christian. And he actually delivered this to the National Secular Society in England. And if you read this essay, it's not very long, and it's actually quite a good read. Uh, One of the things that Russell says is that um, he believes that religion is primarily predicated on fear. Religion preys on the fear of uh, certain fears. Fear of the unknown, fear of death, fear of hell, fear of the wrath of God, fear of judgment. And so it preys on people's fears and it it manipulates people. And so for Bertrand Russell, he was like, this is why I can't believe in Christianity because it's predicated on fear. And yet, what does Jesus say in verse 10? It says, don't be afraid. You don't have to fear me. Now, why is Jesus, why is God someone that we don't need to be afraid of? But why is he someone that we can approach and actually love? Well, there's a story of a uh, an English teacher who taught uh, writing in elementary school. And um, she had this one particular student this one particular year uh, that said something and wrote something she had never heard before. And so she called their parents. Now, as a parent, this is the last thing you ever want, a phone call from your daughter or son's teacher saying what they did. And um, I was thinking about this story in relation to... Uh, my own daughter Logan because she she's like a sponge right now she's two and so she's she regurgitates anything that we say and so sometimes my wife Hannah and I will say things like oh shoot and you know whenever we made a mistake or something and so my daughter Logan would say oh shoot as well except that when she says it, it sounds like oh something else and so she says this in context all the time and she says it numerous times a day and so she started saying at school and so I had to prep her daycare teachers saying, you know, we're not teaching her this, I promise this is really what she means. And so I was thinking about that. But anyway, so uh, the teacher calls the, uh, the uh, daughter's parents and she said, every year um, we do a, uh, a writing exercise. I begin the story and the students are supposed to end it. And so the story goes that there's an ant and a grasshopper. And The ant, during the summertime, diligently stores away its food in preparation for the winter, while the grasshopper just runs and plays. So fast forward a few months later, and it's wintertime, and the ant has plenty to eat, but the grasshopper is now starving. And so the grasshopper sheepishly goes to the ant's home, knocks on its door, and says, May I have some food? And the teacher says, Now you finish the story. And she says... Most of my students, I mean, all of my students do one of two endings. Number one, the ant says, Here's some of my food, and it shares it with the grasshopper. Or the alternative ending is that the ant says, No, you are lazy, you need to learn your lesson, so I'm not going to share any of my food with you. But she said, You know, your daughter came up with the third ending, an alternative ending I've never seen before. And she said, Your daughter said that the ant didn't give away some of its food, but it gave away all of its food. And so as a result of that, the grasshopper was lit, was able to live at the expense of the ant's life. And underneath that little essay, that writing assignment, were a drawing of three little crosses. Now here's what you know, and here is what the daughter knew. The grasshopper is us. The ant is Jesus. And he gave his everything at the expense of his life so that we could have life. Now is that someone that you need to fear or is that someone that you can actually love? Someone that is willing to do everything for you at the expense of his life. And I should also add that the ant didn't have to give away any of its food to the grasshopper. And similarly, Jesus didn't have to die for us. But what you also need to know is that even though Jesus didn't have to die for us, he was glad to die for us because of who we are. You know, Victor Hugo, the writer of Les Mis, once uh, beautifully said that the greatest happiness that any person can ever experience in life is the conviction that they are loved. (laughs) What greater conviction do you need to know that you are loved than the cross of Jesus Christ? Because that is the greatest display of love. And as a result of that, Peter's fears are now transformed into love. And whenever Jesus brings you into a relationship with him, he does something ironic because he boomerangs you out. When he brings you in, he sends you right back out. And so if you take a look with me at verse 10 and 11 once more, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Because Peter was willing to take a smaller risk, like throwing out the net once, uh, once more, it was easier then to take a bigger risk, leaving everything to follow him. And they did. Peter, James, and John, they left, they left their father Zebedee on the boat. They left their catch of fish They left their nets. They left their family business. They left comfort, security, control, their hometown. They left everything to follow him. And that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus that we leave everything behind to to follow him. In Luke 14 it says that if you do not hate your father and mother, if you do not hate your children, and if you don't hate even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now those are very some very strong words. But what does Jesus mean when he says that? He doesn't mean that you have to literally hate your family. You have to literally hate your life. He doesn't mean it literally so much as he means it comparatively. That your love for me has to be so intense that all other loves look like hatred. That I have to be such a priority in your life that you have to be willing to drop anything to follow me. Abandon anything even to follow me. That I, I must be second to none. Now, if you do that, if Jesus is that much of a priority in your life, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is what Joseph Campbell said. If you follow the call, there will be conflict. Um, there will be barriers that you face. And I already know, based on talking to many of you, that because of you following Jesus, some of you have lost romantic relationships. Some of you have lost higher-paying jobs. Some of you have experienced family friction as a result of your faith. Some of you have lost time, energy, money. You have given up different things. And I'm empathetic to that because I'm no different. It's cost me certain things as well to follow him. But at the same time, even though I'm empathetic to what we're all going through, I am also encouraged because you understand what it means to count the cost to follow him rather than negotiating the cost all the time. So if I can read for you the second quote from Tim Keller. Keller says that people sometimes say to me, I would like to be a Christian, but will I have to do this? Will I have to keep give up doing that? Will I have to pray, give up sex, quit my job, change my views? Certainly questions like this have some legitimacy because you do need to consider what it will cost you to become a Christian. Jesus himself tells us to count the cost of discipleship. But I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they are willing to give up things, but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. They want to be in a position to do ongoing cost-benefit analyses on various kinds of behavior, which keeps them in the driver's seat on the throne of their life, uh, as it were. If Jesus counted the cost, the cost of his own life to be in a relationship with us, how can we withhold anything from being in a relationship with him? You actually have no right. Not if you want to be in a relationship with him. You have lost the right to negotiate with him if he has given his everything to you it would only be fair it would only be love if you were to do and reciprocate the same way to him and one of the things that he he calls us to when we're entering into a relationship with him is to be fisher a fisher of men now this past week in my community group i was uh, asking my my cg why do you think it's so hard for us to share our faith and without a doubt the most the number one unanimous answer was the fear of social cost. The fear that I might not be as cool or accepted amongst my colleagues. The fear that I could even potentially lose my job because of my values and beliefs. And here's the thing you might. You might be socially ostracized. You might even potentially lose your job or a higher paying gig because you're weird and because of what you value and believe. But there is always a cost to following something if it is that much of a priority in your life. But we do so, why? Not only because he loves us, but because he says so. Because that, it, that is what it means to be a disciple, someone that follows Jesus. And so one of the most important things that we have to learn as modern Christians living in the city is that, what does it look like to share our faith? It means two things, not hiding who you are and just being yourself, that this is who I really am. And it's not second, third, or fourth, but it's actually number one, and I cannot hide who I am. So let me read the uh, third quote on the uh, first page of your bulletin from Michael Bechtel. And Bechtel says that, I found that when I try to share my faith in unnatural ways, my fear gets larger and tends to stop me from sharing. That kind of fear almost always signals that I'm sharing out of guilt instead of compassion. But when I share it in ways that fit with God's design for me, a creative tension compels me to look for new ways to move forward. Compassion drives me to look for unique, appropriate ways to make a spiritual connection. And what he's saying here is that when we share our faith, our, our main goal is not to procure an unnatural decision at the moment because evangelism is not an event, it is a process. And so we're not looking for someone to say some kind of prayer or something like that at that moment. All we're called to do is just be ourselves. All you're called to do is just say, this is who I am. All you're called to do is just to gently nudge people to the next level of belief. All we're called to do is to cast a net out. But the catch of fish at the end of the day is ultimately up to him. And as someone that struggles casting my net out, if I can be very honest, the more and more I do it, the easier easier it gets. And secondly, I cannot tell you how awesome it is to see people's lives transformed. Because we are not in the self-help business. We are in the resurrection business. And we want to see people's lives flipped upside down and healed. I cannot tell you how awesome it is to be on a journey with God like that. The fact that I get to partner with what God is doing in people's lives, it is incredible, which is why every Monday morning we have a staff meeting. And before we talk about our agenda for the day, do you know what we talk about? We share stories. We share stories about what God is doing in our midst. But here's the thing, even though God is doing some wonderful things and the stories are really, really incredible, even if there were no stories for that week or for that month or for that year, We wouldn't change a thing. We would still be doing what he said to do. Why? Simply because he says so. Because it's not about us. It's about him. So let me close with one final story from Elizabeth Elliot. And she says that um, one day Jesus is walking with Peter and the other disciples, and Jesus says to the disciples, will you carry a stone for me? Uh, But being that Jesus didn't specify what kind of stone to carry, being very pragmatic and practical, Peter picks up a very small pebble and puts it in his pocket. For the next few hours, they go walking, and Jesus says, may I see your stone? And he waves his hand in the air, abracadabra, turns into a piece of bread and fish. And for Peter, because his stone was so small, it was just crumbs, and so he's starving. And so a few hours later, Jesus says to the disciples, "Um, will you carry a stone for me? And Peter thinks to himself, I got this okay? So he carries this, he picks up this large boulder, puts it on the back of his neck, and carries this around for hours upon hours. And around dinner time, Jesus says, now put this stone by the riverside. So they all throw their, their stone or their mini boulder by the riverside, and that was it. No fish, no bread, no nothing. And Peter has this, Peter's dripping in sweat, and he has this perplexed, dumbfounded look. And so he's thinking, you know, what's up? And Jesus, seeing that he's he has this expression, he says to him, Peter, who were you carrying the stone for? Was it really for me or was it for you? Why are you in a relationship with God? Is it just about you or is it primarily about him? If he has given us his life, how can we withhold anything from him? And even when it gets hard, why do we do what we do? Because you say so. Because that is what it means to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. In the words of uh, Kevin DeYoung, Lord, would you make us as passionate about you as Stephen A. Smith is about everything. In Jesus' name I pray.